hopefully everyone has had a terrific week and a meaningful week as we've gone through this time. And as already been mentioned uh, more than once, this is the seventh day of unleavened bread, the last day in which we are expected to enjoy unleavened bread. And uh, I, for one, do that. It's, uh, I think I've mentioned before that it seems good enough to buy some extra and think, yeah, I'll, I'll keep eating this until I have a slice of bread. And it, no, no, we can maybe throw that away, and it won't last another. It won't last a whole year. We enjoyed these seven days, and we recognize that it took seven days for Israel to fully exit Egypt. We understand that they went through the Red Sea on the seventh day, and as we picture or represent that Egypt pictured sin that at that point, at least in type, Israel had come out of sin. But we know that there was much more that had to be accomplished, much more that had to be done for them. They had to learn a great deal, and they also had to unlearn a great deal. And uh, the scripture back in Genesis 12:40 references that, Israel leaving Egypt uh, was 430 years, which is a not a proper rendering, and it should be rendered completed 430 years, going back to the initial covenant that God made with, with Abraham. And what I wanted to at least make sure that we understand, I referenced in there that they were in Egypt uh, over 200 years. And that based on how we look at generations today, that could be seven to nine generations that and a lot can happen in 200 years as i mentioned the other night that empires rise and fall in 200 years now to make sure we understand it also does tell us in genesis 15 verse 16 that israel would come out in the fourth generation so god's reckoning of generations is different than how we look at it from today's point but the the fundamental point is that israel had been in egypt for over 200 years, and they were surrounded by a fully pagan society. And over that time, they had lost track of what God expected of them. They were slaves. They did what they were told to do. There was little recourse for them other than being beaten, perhaps. They were treated cruelly, and it would be naive of us to think that somehow they remained unaffected by the world they knew. Just like it's naive for us to think we aren't affected by the world we know and that we live in today. They were influenced by it. And as I mentioned, a lot can happen in 200 years. And what I mentioned on uh, the Bible study was that one of the things that is evidence of that is that God had to show them which day was the weekly Sabbath and remind them of it and expect them to do it. And we also have to realize that Egypt would not have willingly given up their cheap labor force, their slaves, the people that did the hard work for them. Again, the Israelites were slaves, and Egypt was a, a mighty 
and a prosperous nation. And they had an army, I would uh, have no doubt, that was big enough and and, uh, strong enough to subjugate and strike fear into the Israelites. So deliverance and freedom, uh, those words mean certain things to us, and whatever they might have meant to the Israelites at the time to think about being free, uh, I'm sure had various levels of understanding to 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 them. But something... And maybe many somethings, something miraculous would have to happen for them to become a free people. It was not going to happen easily. So let's turn over to Exodus chapter 6. Because it was going to take a lot of power over a mighty nation for that to be accomplished. And in the chapter 6 of Exodus We'll read the first eight verses. It says, Then the Eternal said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Eternal. I, I can do this. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, and by my name, eternal, by my name, eternal, I was not known to them. Well, that's interesting because the word is used earlier in the Bible, but that was not how he addressed himself to mainly to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was the Almighty One, the Almighty God. And he says, I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan. So that was what he promised to the, to the, to the forefathers. The land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the eternal. I will bring you out from under the burden of the, of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with great judgments. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, or eternal, your God, who brings you out from under the Egyptians, from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the eternal. I'm able to do and keep the covenant that I made to them, and I remember what needs to be done. I will do these things to Pharaoh. I can do them. So God... began to intervene, because knowing it was going to take a lot of power to do that. So he brought ten plagues, as we know, on Egypt. I won't go through all of them. But by doing so, God humbled a great nation and basically devastated them politically. And it was a long time for them to revive themselves politically. Now, we might think about why ten Because God could have done this in a single stroke, right? He wanted to do it a certain way. He could have shortened that process, but he chose to use 10. Let's go over to Exodus 11. We'll read here just the first verse. And the Eternal said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. 
and afterward he will let you go from here. Whereas the worst one is yet to come, and when he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. And then over in chapter 12, this one additional judgment he was going to bring against Egypt. We're well aware of this, how devastating this could be. It says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, referring to the Passover night, and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the eternal. So God chose to use ten plagues because he wanted to remind and show Egypt that none of their so-called gods could withstand the power that he was going to render against them. He chose a way he used some of their gods actually against them in those plagues that he brought upon them to show them that he was, in fact, the eternal. So my point here is that God works them rather, not rather, he works some very amazing miracles in order for Israel to achieve this effort of coming out of Egypt, which was, again, a type of sin. These miracles, these last two, sort of culminated in the two, or the, all these miracles culminated in two very significant ones, all of the firstborn being killed. And if you think of the adults or the people, the children, the firstborn of all, uh, of all the families and all the animals, it, that's not just an accident, not just a coincidence. It would require a great God to do those sorts of things. And so two more are coming to show how powerful he is. And lastly, of course, after the firstborn are killed, then he parts the Red Sea to ultimately deliver Egypt or the Israelites out of Egypt. So a lot had been done in the first seven days to getting them over to the to the Red Sea. But in the previous days and weeks, perhaps all these other plagues had also been rendering Egypt little by little, just humbling them to a point where they were willing to shoo Israel out, take them, get out of here. We want to, otherwise, we're all dead men, as we have read. So what is all this? And some of what we will yet review as we go through the sermon have to do with us today. As we close out the Days of Unleavened Bread, let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we read this quite often to follow exactly what it says here. And I want to, as we read it, maybe turn to a different tact. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. So identifying that Christ was the the God of the Old Testament. Then we skip down to verse 6. And so all this accounts, some of which we've read, and we'll go back and read some more. But he says, these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. 
In verse 11, now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So what the Israelites went through is clearly meant to teach us certain spiritual lessons because we are the ones upon whom the ends of the ages have come. As was mentioned even in the opening prayer, we are seeing all around us the closing of the age when man could do, can do what he wants and rebel against God that will come to a change, to an end. And these things that we have read and are going to read are to teach us certain lessons about what we're to do. Now, God also set an example here. And rather than just look at what the Israelites did not do or what they did in terms of disobeying, I'd like to also take, a, take the time to focus on what, how God responded, what God's example was, if you will. Review what Israel went through, but look at it from the eyes or through our eyes of what God did for Israel to see to it that they would have a chance to go into the promised land and be a part of fulfilling the, co- fulfilling the covenant that God had made with Israel. So if you want a title for the sermon, I worded it this way. To come out of sin, we need help. To come out of sin, we need help. And then add, help is available. Help is available. God, over and over, performed extraordinary miracles to bring Israel to their physical inheritance that he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. And the reality is he will do that and much more for us today. So let's now resume our review of what God's interventions were. Let's go back again to Exodus chapter 11. Exodus chapter 11, we read verse 1 just a bit earlier. So let's read verses 2 and 3 and begin to see what God did for Israel. Of course, he's talking to Moses, and he says, Speak now in the hearing of the people, and let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Eternal gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. That, I, you know, I don't think that means they were just happy to be handing over their articles of silver and gold. They were willing to cooperate. He gave them favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt and and in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. I think that's a reminder that they recognized who Moses was and who he had been when he had been, quote-unquote, the sort of the son of the Pharaoh, a great leader in Egypt. So God gives them, he tells them to go and ask for articles of silver and gold. 
Now, they'd been in slavery for a long time. Now, how might we think about what they're, they're receiving? We might call it back pay. <laughs> uh, how about a 401k with uh, no taxes attached? They've been given some very special and precious things. After 200 years of being captive, and that generation, that last generation, collects quite a bit. And then we go over on down to uh, chapter 12, verses 35 and 36. Now, the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses. I could think there was a certain amount of glee (laughs) and them cooperating with Moses at that point. Go ask for silver and gold from the Egyptians. It was pretty exciting for them. And they had asked the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold. And, oh, while we're here, (laughs) how about some very nice clothes (laughs) to take with us? Uh, today we might think of that as compared to whatever their wardrobes were like as slaves. We might treat that as, uh, give me, give me some of the designer clothes that you have because again, the Egyptians were a very prosperous people. And if we think about what they were getting, now we're going to have a flea market in a few weeks. I don't think they were collecting flea market items here. <laughs> They were taking some precious jewels, some you know, silver and gold, some nice, very fine clothes, things that they had never enjoyed in their lifetime in all likelihood. They plundered, is the word, and it was used elsewhere. They plundered the Egyptians. Not about these precious metals, and I don't think, I, I can't see them as going in as, as beggars and timidly doing this. I think they were probably pretty assertive in asking the Egyptians for all these things. They took of the very best that Egypt had had acquired over years, but maybe even decades of time of their prosperity. And now God had told them to go and ask for these things. And he was intervening to give them a different life. And if, if, if you will, this was, I think, maybe a, uh, a rather big taste of what life was going to be like if they continued to obey God and go into the promised land, because that was a land flowing with milk and honey. This was just the initial blessing that was there. God intended some of that wealth, of course, for a special purpose. We just briefly turn over to uh, chapter 25. For a moment, chapter 25, here in verse 1, says, Then the Eternal spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. So now God has granted them maybe what they would consider great wealth to a degree. And bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart. You shall take my offering. Again, something we practice on the holy days as we just did. And this is the offering which you shall take from them. Gold. Silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet thread, fine linen, goat's hair, ram skins, dyed red, uh, uh, badger skins, acacia wood, oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense, onyx stones, and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. 
and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So some of this plundering was intended for God to have a place, if you will, a tabernacle in which he could dwell among his chosen people. We'll come to, we know what they ended up doing with a lot of it. Let's go back to chapter 13 of Exodus. I'm going to read any particular part of this chapter. Here he explains the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But as he explains that to them, he does tell them something very, very special here. Verse 5, And it shall be when the Eternal brings you into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you. He tells them now this is a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service in this month. So he, he tells them, I'm taking you to some place that's very special. And uh, we might think of places we've been. We think they're just uh, fantastic places to be. You know, I, driving around Charlotte right now this time of year, as I've mentioned, Charlotte's a beautiful place. Going from the dogwoods, uh, breaking out in their beautiful flowers, and now you drive around what seems to be uh, just about every direction. A lot of Charlotte still appears to be forested. Lots of trees, beautiful area. And for the Israelites to be told a land flowing with milk and honey compared to pits of mortar and brick and maybe for straw for a while and living in huts and looking all around them and looking at the prosperity of the Egyptians and thinking now, wow, we've got all this wealth and we get to go to a land that has plenty God explains to them, you're going to keep this festival so you remember what it was like in the old days. We talk about the old days, how good they were. Well, the Israelites are going to be told, you're going to remember what you were as I take you into a place of great prosperity and great blessings if you will simply follow my way. So in chapter, again, in chapter 13, over in verses 21 and 22, Again, how God continues to work with them, what he does for them. Verse 20, And they took their journey from Succoth and camped in Edom on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord, or the Eternal, went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. There was times they were actually traveling in the dark. But God saw to it that they would be able to see where they were going and what they needed to do. He was with them all the time on this journey. Over in Hebrews chapter 13, we wanted to just compare some of these things as we go through that with what he tells us today. Over in, again, Hebrews chapter 13. And what we read here is actually quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 16. But Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, he says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. 
For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Quoted again from Deuteronomy chapter 3. God says, I'm going to be with you. He told Joshua the same thing in Joshua chapter 1. And by quoting it here, Paul is telling all of us, we, have been, we are entitled, if you will, or have been promised the very same blessings. Back to chapter 14 of the book of Exodus. Verses 19 and 20. And the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians. Of course, the setting here is where the Egyptians have decided to chase them down and not let them leave. And God again intervenes for them. Came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one, to the Egyptians, and he gave light by night to the other, so that the one did not come near the other all that night. God miraculously stood guard and defended and protected Israel. So we have the account then, this is in verse 21, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, the eternal caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea into dry land and the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. So we find then in verse 28, And then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained. But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right and on their left. So the Eternal saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Again, we... We've read that so many times in our lives, being in the church. But hopefully that, when we read that, we are not desensitized to just how fantastic and miraculous that event was. To manage, God had the power to divide the Red Sea such that a few million people could walk across that and escape the armies that were behind them. And as uh, the special effects, as, as uh, poor as they were compared to what we have today, you, in the movie The Ten Commandments, it does give you some impression of what it was like. So they saw the water as walls on either side. And realizing that they had been told to go across, that takes a certain amount of faith, even for the, Egypt, even for the Israelites then. It's like, can we make it? And, of course, the armies of the Egyptians start chasing them. And, of course, the Egyptians end up being drowned. But special protection, again, God does something just awesomely miraculous in order to deliver Israel from, if you will, from, from sin. Compared to us, what does he do for us today? Let's turn over to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 
Philippians chapter 4. Verses 6 and 7. Paul writes, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Much as that pillar of the cloud went behind Israel and in front of Egypt and protected them and then would lead them through this. God says he will guard the same way he will guard our hearts and our minds. He's dealing with us on an entirely different level, a different plane. On a spiritual plane, he says he will give us his, his peace to guard our minds. Over in Second Thessalonians, Chapter 3, verse 3, a greatly comforting scripture, if we take note of it. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 3, verse 3. But the eternal is faithful. So many times God uses that term about himself throughout the scripture to remind us that he is absolutely trustworthy. He's faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one, much as he guarded and protected Israel, even on a physical plane. He will protect us from Satan, from Satan's minions, from the demons. We can ask for God to give us protection before and after and put his angels about us. How many of us would want to go, if you will, on long trips or drive around our loop, sometimes here at 80 miles an hour, and watch the traffic and the issues that are there, if we didn't have God and his angels watching over us? It's a dangerous world, even besides all of the violence, the risk for injury from accidents. And many of you probably here sitting here are have been victims of, of the car accidents, perhaps back problems, things that may never go away unless God heals those things. But we need that protection. God says he will protect us even from Satan. And Peter tells us if we resist him, he will flee from us. Because Satan doesn't want to be around where God's spirit is active, where it's working. He does not want to be in the presence of that spirit where it's producing righteousness. God will give us protection. And I uh, always, I won't turn there, but over in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 15 through 17, and the, and the core of the, the, the story is where Elisha and his servant are, and the king of Syria does not like what Elisha has been able to do to keep Israel safe, and so he goes after Elisha, and... The servant wakes up and he sees the whole Syrian army surrounding the city. And he asks Elisha, what do do we do now? We're surrounded. And Elisha prays to, to God and says, please open his eyes so that he may see. 
As God opened his eyes and he saw the fiery chariots and horses all around the valley, all around in the hills to protect them. God will be our guard and our protector much as he did for Israel and for his servants down through the ages. Now, once that happened, but going back to Exodus 14, once they were across the Red Sea, Exodus 15 is an interesting chapter. And here we have this, what's called the Song of Moses, and a few verses of great interest, because they, maybe at that point, Israel felt somewhat, humanly speaking, secure, because now they were out of Egypt, and the army had been destroyed, and it's like, what, what else, you know, all the real risks are behind us. We can go on now. We're free. And so they celebrate. They have this song. Verse 11. Who is like you, O eternal, among the gods? There are no other gods like the one true God. Who is like you, glorious in holiness and fearful in praises, doing wonders? They weren't just thinking there about the wonders that had devastated Egypt, but they were also now able to fully realize the kind of wonders that God had worked and hopefully would work in their behalf, taking them forward. And with that thought in mind, verse 14, the people will hear and be afraid. It's talking about the enemies. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed, the mighty men of Moab. Trembling will take hold of them. All of the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them by the greatness of your arm. They will be as still as a stone till your people pass over, O eternal. Let the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance in the place, O eternal, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O eternal, which your hands have established. The eternal shall reign forever and ever. Well, that was those words, at least that they sang them, but uh, did they believe them? We know what was forthcoming after that, but they sang them as if they believed of this great future in the promised land. And yet, as we close chapter chapter uh, 15, we find in verse 20, verses 23 through 20. Five, that they've come upon some water that's bitter. Now, I don't know exactly what that means. I didn't look it up in Hebrew, but now they're thirsty, and this water is uh, not potable. So what do we do now? So, well, let's go complain to Moses. <laughs> I mean, they just had this song of celebrating what appeared to them maybe to be total deliverance. And they thought maybe from now on it's going to be, ah, the rest of it will be a cakewalk. Surely the risks are behind us. Well, no, no, we need water. And so God doesn't like their complaining, but he does deliver them. And with a miracle again, he takes this piece of wood, this piece of tree, and has it dumped in the water by Moses, and it's drinkable. And then he adds something here very special in verse 26. If you diligently heed the voice of the eternal, your God, and do what is right in his sight, 
give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I brought have brought on the Egyptians. For I am the eternal who heals you. That's quite a promise. I will take I not only protect you, I won't allow these diseases to come upon you. I won't inflict these things on you like I did with them. And I will heal you. That You know where I'm going with this, surely. Over James, chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, what's it tell us? That if we're sick, we should call upon the elders, ask to be anointed, and the prayer of faith will save the sick. And if sins have been committed, they'll be forgiven. And sometimes we are sick because we do break God's law. And sometimes there are certain things we do that bring, spiritual things we do, as well as physical, that bring physical consequences. We get ill because we abuse our bodies. We don't take care of ourselves as we ought. But God does tell us that those, those sins, spiritual and physical, can be forgiven, and we as well can be healed, doing for us the same things he promised to Israel as he wanted to bring them into the promised land. Chapter 16, we have a story here about they want meat, and God gives them quails, and you go back and read the the article by Mr. O'Gwen. I don't have in my notes here what year it was, but he talks about the night to be much observed. And he points out that the quails came on what we would call Saturday evening after the Sabbath was over because the miracle of the manna was to start the next day, which would be the first day of the week and run six days and not be there on the following Sabbath. So they are complaining. They want meat to eat. And so God gives them quail. And he also begins to give them manna on the next morning. And that was in spite of their attitude. They wanted quail. They wanted wanted some flesh. Uh, They got more than they wanted, really, at one point, uh, complaining to God, complaining to Moses. But they did get the quail. He gave them manna to eat. And all the indications are it was pretty good stuff. (laughs) They said like the kinds of, you know, maybe our, our cookies when they bake those things. And so then in verse 35 of chapter 16, And the children of Israel ate manna 40 years until they came into an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan for 40 years. A guaranteed food supply for 40 years. And after a while, they just they expected it. Six days a week, they got food. Now, they already had animals traveling with them. Some of we might forget that they took herds and, and they should shot sheep and goats and probably some cows with them as they went along. But God gave them bread, if you will, for 40 years. Let's go over to Luke chapter 12. Luke 12, 
Verse 22. Here Christ, of course, is speaking to the disciples and said, Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body which you will put on or what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. And dropping down to verse 29. And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. Now, we, this is it. I understand the context is about what the disciples were going to be doing, what they were being told to do. But he says, don't worry about this. And he says, for all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your father knows what that did you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things will shall be added to you. We're just told by God if we will trust him and we'll obey him, we do not have to worry about going hungry. God will provide for us. On a physical basis, he will take care of us. As long as we do what he says in verse 31, we seek God's kingdom. By obeying his law, serving his work, serving his people, striving to change, striving to live up to the meaning of the days of unleavened bread. We want to change. We want to grow. And sometimes it's not easy. There are things that many of us struggle to overcome. Traits or habits that we've had for years and we're still aware that need to be changed. So we're working on that. We keep trying to change. And if we are willing to serve God and obey him, then he will provide for us. Let's go back to Exodus 32. And, of course, this is a... Disappointing occurrence. This is where Israel, with Moses still up on the mountain, Israel demands a an idol, a god of Aaron, to make a god for them. And after all that they had been through, and I mentioned in the Bible study on Wednesday night, after all the th- times that God had very clearly and emphatically told them, don't don't make any graven image, don't make any idol, don't even mention the name of an idol. One would think this might be the last thing they would think to do. Rather, it's the first thing. We don't know what happened to Moses, so let's make a God. Let's find one that will take us back and take care of us. And some of the plunderings, that God had intended, we read earlier in chapter 25, those plunderings that God had intended to be offerings that would uh, build and provide for the tabernacle. Some of those pieces of gold and other items were ended up being shaped into an idol, into a golden calf. Not what God intended when he gave them all of those things. And God is very angry in verse 9. And the Lord, or the Eternal, said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone. Get out of my way. (laughs) Don't interfere, Moses, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I will consume them, 
and I will make of you a great nation. Now, I'm sure you've heard, many of you, at least if you've been around a while, how tempting that might sound to some, to a human being, to have Aaron's name, maybe it would be Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. <laughs> the promises go through these special men. But Moses would have none of that. Verse 11 Then Moses pleaded with the Eternal, his God, and said, Eternal, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, with great power and with a mighty hand? Again, referencing my point is that God knew he would have to do great things to free his people. In verse 14, So the Eternal relented from the harm which he said he would do, to his people, because Moses did intervene, and because God respected Moses. Chapter 33, I'll just skim through the first three verses for a moment. Then the Eternal said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people, whom you... Now, now he, well, God's got it back, back the other way. Moses said, You brought them out. God says, look, you and the people whom you brought out of Egypt, the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will send my angel before you, rather than promising to go himself. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, in verse 3, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Well, in the rest of the chapter, we also find that Moses intervenes and says, we need you to go with us. So let's turn over to chapter 40 of Exodus. Exodus chapter 40. And we'll read the very last part of Verse 33, this has to do with after building the, the tabernacle and everything around it. So Moses finished the work. So, and then in verse 38, as we close the book of Exodus, it says, For the cloud of the eternal was above the tabernacle by day, and fire was over it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So God did stay with Israel for 40 years. There were lots of ups and downs, maybe more downs than ups. But God did not depart from them. He guided Israel for 40 years. Then we come in, over in the book of Numbers to chapter 14 to a one account that's important for us because this happened, didn't happen at the end of the the 40 years, but this was a critical juncture much prior to that. Numbers 14, verses 3 and 4, and this is after the spies have been sent into the promised land and 10 come back with an evil report. Two, Joshua and Caleb come back with a good report. 
we should go in there and take over. But the Israelites don't listen to those to the minority, the two. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt. If only we had died in this wilderness. That's pretty short-sighted commentary. Why don't we just, why aren't we already dead? <laughs> We're afraid to go into the promised land. It'd be better if we just died. Or we'd stayed back there in Egypt. And it, it's amazing how hindsight sometimes looks back and we talk about the good old times. Egypt didn't have good old times. I mean, Israelites didn't have good old times. They were slaves. They didn't really have anything to go back to. It's something they would say, this will be good to go back. They were looking at it very carnally. Verse 3, why has the eternal brought us to this land to fall by the sword that our wives and our children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they reached a point where they refused to go into the promised land. Of course, that was 38 years earlier from what we read at the end of Exodus, where it stated that God was with them for 40 years. Then in verse 11, he says, I will strike them. God talking about to Moses says, I will strike them. How long will these people reject me? How long will they not believe me? With all the signs which I have performed among them. Over and over and over, even in the midst of their griping and grumbling and rebellion, God did wondrous things for them. And he asked, when? Well, when will this make an impression that will last more than 24 hours? When am I going to do? They're going to be convinced that I will take care of them. No, I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. I will make you a nation greater and mightier than they. Of course, Moses again intervenes. Verse 18, we come after he's talked to God and he says, wait a minute, God, the eternal is long suffering and abundant in mercy. Forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he, but he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Sometimes again, what we do does affect our, our progeny, our grandchildren, our great grandchildren. But he says here, remember your long suffering. You're a God of mercy. Now, People read in the world, read about God and how he dealt with Israel, and he talks about God being harsh. Well, now God says, I am slow to anger, and I am abundant. There's a bounty of mercy. We only have some description of what Israel did. What that tells me when, when it says God gets this angry, there's a whole lot of story we've, we, we don't have recorded. The griping and the grumbling and the issues that they put forth and tried God's patience and God's mercy. But Moses says in verse 19, pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy. Remember your very nature. You have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. Over the last two years or so, you have kept forgiving them. Don't stop now. Then the eternal said, I have pardoned. According to your word. Once again, God relents to a degree. But truly, in verse 21, as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the eternal. 
Because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt in the wilderness and have put me to the test now these ten times, these many, many times, and they have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. So the adults from 20, age 20 and up, spent the next 38 years knowing that was how long they had to live at most. Some would die along the way, but some of them at the very end would know that their lives were just about over. At some point, God said, I'm going to hold them accountable. In verse 39, then Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the children of Israel, and the people mourned greatly. And again, I can only imagine. The die has been cast as sentence. They've been sentenced. They've been found guilty, and they've been sentenced. They don't know that all of the adults are going to be held accountable for not being faithful enough, trusting enough, after having seen all of the things that God had done for them, to trust him that, yes, we here's the land of flowing with milk and honey. It's what I've been promising to you now for the last two years, what I've told you about and you've dreamed about. Don't stop now. And they... They chose not to do that. And God held them because they were adults and responsible. He held them accountable for that. We've read some of the scriptures as we went through that, that, uh, that review. But God has given us much the same care and blessings that he gave ancient Israel. And even more so. Because God is dealing with us on a spiritual basis. He has given us his Holy Spirit, and along with that, he has given us great and precious promises. How much do we believe those promises? Do we believe those promises deeply enough, truly enough, that we are willing to continue changing? We're willing to pay the price of giving up on our human nature, giving up on our darker side, if I can put it that way, our human nature that pulls us the wrong way. Each of us, I think, should take stock of what God has done for us, what he did for Israel. they, They complained and they sinned and they rebelled. But each time up to the point of not going to the promised land. Even then, he didn't destroy them. He gave them almost four decades of life for some of them. He intervened for them over and over. We should take stock of what God has done for us. What has he done for you? Not yesterday, not just yesterday. What about from the very time that he called us? The things that, yes, sometimes we've allowed, been allowed to go through them. But some of the enormous blessings that you and I enjoy because God is a God of covenant, who keeps covenant, whose promises are as good as done. He calls those things that are not as though they already happened, as if they're history. Now, we think about that in terms of prophecy. But do we ever think about that in terms of us? 
He's called us. He wants us to be in his kingdom. He's going to work with us. And we look back at all these things that he's done for us, and those should be the items that convince you and me they're not going to stop. But what happens in our minds, if you're as human as I am, (laughs) next time you get pretty sick? Well, I wonder if God's going to heal me this time. (laughs) Sometimes we question God. We're not absolutely faithful. Of course, I understand we're human. We have many, many blessings. We should be able to remember and think about them. Would we ever doubt that God is going to continue working with you and me? Is there any doubt that this is all a mistake? Somehow God didn't really mean to pick you. He, you know, now he has to get rid of you. No. He chose you and me. He is going to continue working with us. If we doubt that our blessings, God's intervention, God's protection, God's support, God's help is going to somehow end, then we're pretty much carnal the same way Israel was. In spite of all the good things they went through, they began to doubt God at every turn and did History, in that sense, didn't mean anything to them. But the history that you and I have in the church of God and part of God's family should tell us such that we should expect every day of our lives that God is going to be with you and with me and keep working with us. Have you been healed? Have you had just even one occasion in your life where you've been sick and you were asked, you asked to be anointed And you know, beyond any doubt, at least when it happened, you have no doubt that that was direct supernatural intervention. And I dare say there are many of you, maybe not everyone, I don't know, but many of you would look back on your life and say, yes, but more than once. It's happened to me. And I've seen God intervene. You know, uh, sometimes we think about being, I'll give you an example about being baptized. You know, you, you think, well, I wonder if it took. Do I have God's spirit or don't I? Well, I I remember being ordained an elder, and I I wonder if it took. (laughs) And I remember the first time I was on anointing duty. And after services were over, a couple come in. They were new in the church, which is very typical of how God works with us. They were fairly new in the church, and during the services, the lady had gotten very sick, and she was had a large amount of abdominal pain. I don't know if it's serious or not, but wanted to be anointed. I anointed her, and before we got up off our knees, the pain was gone. Now, that really encouraged her. It also encouraged me <laughs> because I, it wasn't me that healed her, but it was just the idea that God was using the system that he set up so can we remember, can any, any of us remember where God did that for us? And I know that most of us, I would hope that most of us had. What about unexpected blessings? He says he can do for us or will do for us more than we ask or think. Things just sort of out of the blue. Didn't expect that. Financial blessings. Sometimes we had amazing solutions to problems that we thought were insoluble. Uh, 
and somehow they just things fell in place and they worked out. I would hope that that would characterize certain events in your life. It does mine. Sometimes you look at it, there is no solution. And God manufactures one because he can control everything. And so we don't, should never doubt that whatever, whatever is in front of us is not such an obstacle that it can't be overcome. Because God says he will take care of us. And if you, and you do, if you have a converted mind, then that in itself is a miracle. Because in the flesh we have carnal minds. And God works a very special miracle to open our minds and give us the humility to repent and give us his Holy Spirit and give us the seed of eternal life. And we have a chance to change our lives and it takes the power of God to do that. And the promises that God makes to us far exceed all the promises, if you will, and the blessings that God gave to Israel. Let's note just just a few of those. Let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians chapter 10. And as we go through these, let's ask ourselves, do we believe right down to the soles of our feet that these are absolutely true? Verse 13, no temptation is overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful. Again, that phrase, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it, to hold up, to recover, to make it through. He says there is not a temptation that any other power in this universe can produce that is greater than his power to solve. That's a promise we have to lay, lay hold of. And as Mr. Ames always talks about, we have to claim that. And sometimes in our, with our human nature, we think, I, I don't know if I can go through this. I don't know if I can bear up on this one. But that scripture says we can. And if we take that as the absolute truth, then we have an awesome promise to go and claim when we talk to our God. Ephesians chapter 3. I made reference to this a moment ago. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. He's not talking just about external miracles here. He's talking about what he can produce through his Holy Spirit in our lives. According to the power that works in us. Dividing the Red Sea, uh, killing all the firstborn of Egypt, uh, and it's like when Elisha took uh, Elijah's uh, robe 
and he struck the Jordan River and the river stopped. That's not hard for God. It's physical. He made the whole universe. But God's greatest and hardest work, if you want to call it that, is to change your mind and my mind into a spiritual mind. We have things to overcome yet. I'll ask you again in a minute, but we're now through. Oh, well, on the seventh day of unleavened bread, and we thought about all these things before Passover, and we're practicing coming out of sin. Are we sinless today? Have we become perfect in the last seven days or six and a half, whatever? Well, it is comical, right, <laughs> to think about. No, we haven't gotten there. But God says that he can work with us. And we can continue to change and overcome. We can use the Feast of Unleavened Bread as a driving force in our lives for the rest of our lives. For the rest of the year till we do this again. Able to do exceedingly or super is uh, one of the commentaries puts the word super there. Super abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. He tells us he can do wondrous things with us as a people. Over in Romans Chapter 8, these are verses. That many of us hang our spiritual lives on. Verses 28 and 31, Romans 8. And we know, do we know this? Is this really something you and I know? Beyond any shadow of a doubt, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called, the called, the called ones, those who are the saints, those who are the people of God, according to his purpose. We've been called to be a part of his plan, his work, and part of his kingdom. And we know then in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? Whatever challenges there may be, if God is for us, who or what can be against us? Awesome promises that God can can and will produce in us the kind of character that he needs, that he wants us to have so that we can be used in this work today, but also in his kingdom. So in closing, a few scriptures to go, but let's think about this in terms of overcoming and putting sin out of our lives. As I mentioned a moment ago, after seven days, are we perfect? No. Many of the things that you and I identified as we went through the pre-Passover examination, I dare say some of those things, if you bothered to write them down last year at the same time, that this year they were still on the list. There are some things that take years to change. It takes years to develop, to reinforce certain habits, And sometimes it takes a long time to change them. And if we don't give up, God keeps working with us. Do we ever think that maybe there's a trait of character that I I just, I I don't know what to do about this. I I don't know that I will ever get this one fixed before Christ returns. And maybe there are, not today, we're not going to be perfect when Christ returns, so there's going to be some still some things wanting. But we should not be thinking about failing. If he's going to do exceedingly abundantly more than we ask or think in us, then there's a lot of fruit 
we can yet produce and certainly that God expects. And I understand that we can't change everything at once. Sometimes we can only change one thing at a time, but that's progress. And as long as we're progressing, God keeps working with us. We just need help. To overcome sin, to put sin out of our lives, we need help. And help's available. God says there's power that you and I can use to do that. Let's turn back to John 14. We'll read a little bit of We read these verses during Passover. But let's think about them in this regard. John chapter 14, we'll read verses 15 through 18. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another. Now, I know the margin says comforter, but let's read it the way it it says here. He'll give you another helper. Christ had been their help at that point. He'll give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. Christ was going to die and leave them temporarily. But what was going to be given to them on the day of Pentecost will never go away. He may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth which the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he dwells with you. And that was with the disciples. They didn't have, they were not begotten yet, as you and I are. And not only with you, but will be in you. Verse 18. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Through the power of God's Spirit, I will come and help. God's Spirit will help you, will give you the strength you need to keep changing. Keep addressing, because whatever's on that list, if you wrote wrote the list down, whatever's on there, and you've worked on it, and if it's still there, it doesn't mean we stop working on it until next year. We keep working on it. We've identified the problem, and we ask God to give us the help we need to stay after it, to be relentless in trying to become like him. Christ says, I will come to you. Then in chapter 15, Verses 3 through 5. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Against pointing out how valuable it is for us to study God's word. It's what helps cleanse us. We read what he tells us we need to be and do. And we work on it. We're clean because of the word which God's spoken. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, we, you and I, cannot do this just through human effort. And some of us try way too hard to do it alone. We won't take these things to God in prayer and in faith the way we should. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Which tells us there, we just read, Christ said, I won't leave you orphans. I will come to you. And you can't do this by yourself, but I will be there. So trust in me. And remember, you can't do this alone. 
It's going to take God's spirit. It's going to take Christ in us. And God can provide all the help through his Holy Spirit, can provide all the help you and I need to become like Jesus Christ if we diligently seek him. Let's close then. Let's turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live and go in and possess the land which the eternal God of your fathers is giving you. And if we read that as addressing us today, we think about the kingdom of God. And even in this life, physically, the good things he will provide for us. Moses is talking to them. He's where the law is being given to them again before they go into the promised land later on or before they have the chance to do it. So listen so that you can learn to observe these things, verse 1. So then we go down to verse 6. Moses tells them, therefore, be careful to observe them. For this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes. And they'll say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Those that would mock us in this day and age. Those that would not understand what we do and why we do it. And those who will at some point come to persecute the work we'll be exposed to problems that maybe we really don't want to think too much about but they're going to come and say what a great people what a great nation the family of God that is God so near it as the eternal our God is to us for whatever reason we, he, we may call upon him whatever we need he's going to provide And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments, understanding all the right things to do in order to receive those blessings? Has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law, which I set before you this day. And then the warning, only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen. We can read the account, the accounts of what God did for Israel. But you and I need to rehearse all of the things that God has done for us to keep us in the way. To keep us in his work, keep us in his family. And ask him to keep doing all those things. And trust explicitly that he's going to do that. He's going to keep working with us and produce godly fruit Because if we, as it says in John, that God wants us to bear much fruit that honors the Father and Jesus Christ. But take heed to yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen that we have experienced, unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life. These things that God has done for us should be ever mindful to us. Not just, he didn't just do things to Israel. He did things for Israel, amazing things. And God doesn't do things to you and me. 
He allows some things to happen, but God does things for us. And what he's going to do more than anything else, he's going to work with us. And through the power of his spirit, he's going to work us into his kingdom and his family for eternity. The Days of Unleavened Bread should be a launching pad for us to continue to work on becoming like Jesus Christ.